Well, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. For those of us who are just joining us this morning for the first time, we have been in 1 John for a number of weeks. I was just talking with Brother Brad the other day when we were planning on what we were going to teach. And I proposed 1 John. We were kind of thinking about how many sermons it would take, and we're about 20 sermons in so far, and we still have a whole chapter to go. And I trust that you have been as blessed as I have been in hearing God teach us from this wonderful portion of Scripture. We finished chapter 4 last time. If you recall, we had a part 1 and a part 2 on Christian love. And now the Apostle, in chapter 5, is going to remain with the topic of love, but again, interwork faith, showing us how faith is the wellspring from which this Christian love flows. And so the topic of today's sermon is faith and love. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. If you're keeping notes, there's going to be three headings to today's sermon, and they all have to do with a promise. The first heading is going to be the promised one. The promised one. And that's verse 1 of chapter 5. The second heading is the promised change. That's verses 2 through 3. And the third heading will be the promised victory. The promised victory, verse 4. So the promised one, the promised change, and the promised victory. So now that you have your finger on verse 1 of chapter 5, please read with me. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let us pray one last time. Father, your word is sharper than any double-edged sword. And Father, we ask now that you use it for your glory. Use it for our good. All in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you recall in our previous messages, we were talking about how at this point in 1 John, John is repeating ideas, repeating doctrines, repeating things he's already said. In fact, sometimes more than once. And so it is when we get to chapter 5. John has been driving these points, these doctrines, these theological truths home time and time again in this epistle. We've seen in previous chapters the confidence and the hope that we have 
in our salvation based upon our confession of who Christ is. Remember in the first century, there were competing doctrines of who Christ was. There were competing doctrines of what Christian living looked like. There was a false Christ being promoted in many congregations by false teachers who we've been warned about time and time again in this epistle as antichrists who have crept into the church teaching these false doctrines. John has been equipping us the whole time to be able to distinguish the true Christ from the false Christ. Like a good shepherd, John has been protecting his sheep, even in the area of Ephesus, where the original readers would have received this letter. But he's doing so for us now, because even today, false Christs are being preached. False Christian ethics are being promoted, even from pulpits in churches. And so John, driving these points home, wants to unpack in further detail what we've already seen, but what we can learn from even more this morning. And where he starts is in verse 1, dealing with the promised one. This is what John says. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. The Apostle John again has shown us time and time again how we can be sure of our salvation and how we can test the spirits. And he has done so by reminding us of the true doctrine of who Jesus truly is. Remember, at this time when John wrote, there were many counterfeits. Many would be tempted in congregations to confess a Jesus that was less than the Jesus found in Scripture, less than the Jesus being taught by the apostles. Remember, John has a desire to share this apostolic doctrine with his congregation. He is pointing to those false teachers and saying, you are not apostles, you do not have the authority to teach in the church and the fruit of your teaching must be avoided. The doctrine of Christ that was taught with apostolic authority so controls John's motivation. Remember that he opened up this whole epistle with it. Flip back to chapter 1 if you're able. The very beginning of this epistle where John says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. The Apostle John uses the word we eight times in these verses. And two other times he uses the word us. Who's the we? We've talked about this before. What the Apostle John is stressing here is that is what he is stressing in, in his gospel in chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. 
This is the apostles' confession. This is the apostolic doctrine that was being spread in the ancient world by the apostles. Our New Testament reading this morning bore witness to that. And one that held by anyone who is a child of God, or as John puts it, is born of him, is that Jesus is the Messiah. He uses the word we and us over ten times to show that the we is the apostles. We have seen this. We have looked. We have proclaimed. We have seen. We proclaim to you the word of life. This is the apostolic doctrine. It's a shame that there are those who are teaching a Christ that is not apostolic. But what is the significance of John saying, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God? John has already said, who is the liar? It is he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 2.22 Again, I believe John is repeating precious truths, driving them home for his spiritual children then and now. He's taking arguments that he has already employed and infusing them with new life so as to show us another angle of this precious gem, like a jeweler showcasing a diamond as it turns, seeing all the different facets of this jewel. And when he does this, as he does this, I trust you, along with me, are beholding new and variegated facets of the spiritual treasures hidden in the person and work of Christ and our relationship to the Father through him in the power of the Holy Spirit. One of these, of these nuances of this gem, of this diamond, of this jewel of Christ one of these nuances of John's thought has to do with the drawing attention to the office of Messiah. Again, the word Christ means anointed one. It means Messiah. This is what we mean. This is what John means when he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. What he's saying is, whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah In the beginning of the next pericope, you can look down as the New American Standard has it segmented in the next paragraph, the apostle will say something very similar, except he doesn't highlight the office of the Messiah there, but rather the eternal relationship of Jesus to the Father when he says, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So here in this opening paragraph, the apostle's drawing attention to the Messiahship of Jesus. In the next sermon, we'll be reading about the sonship of the eternal Son of God, who was born a man under the law for our good and for our salvation. One aspect of our confession has to do with the humanity of Christ, does it not? This was a problem of the Gnostics. The false teachers who John is combating, teaching another Jesus, oftentimes would focus so much on his, on his deity that they would argue that he wasn't truly a man because of their erroneous doctrine of thinking that flesh 
and humanity could never truly be in contact in such union with deity because that which is created is wicked and evil and God is good. And so they came up with a counterfeit Jesus. By confessing that Jesus is the Messiah is to confess, no, he is not just an ethereal, godly being divorced from a body and a rational soul, but rather became flesh. This is an aspect of our confession that John does not want us to lose. It is one that was lost by many in his day. And sadly, it's lost by many even today. And yet, truly, we are speaking of one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, here it is, the office of Messiah that is being highlighted by the Apostle. To know of the Christ, the Messiah, is to be familiar with the Old Testament. What would it mean to a common-speaking Greek who didn't know the Scriptures, who didn't know any God-fearing person, to hear that Jesus is the Messiah? The first question that would be asked is, well, what's a Messiah? We've talked about the concept of the Holy Spirit being linked with that of anointing with oil in the Old Testament. And so it is with the concept of the Messiah, which literally means anointed one. Remember when John taught that you have an anointing from the Holy One? And we identified that anointing as the Holy Spirit and the Holy One being Christ, Christ who anoints us. He's the one who ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And how Jesus is the one who anoints you with the Holy Spirit. He's the Holy One. And here we have Jesus again being called the Anointed One, given that Holy Spirit without measure. Brothers and sisters, we all have the Holy Spirit, but He has the Holy Spirit without measure. To know of the Christ is to be familiar with the Old Testament. When was Christ first promised? Here's a clue. He was promised when the gospel was first announced. When was that? Genesis 3.15. Yes, it is true that he was called, he wasn't called the Messiah there. He wasn't called the Anointed One. He wasn't called the Christ at this point. That would come later as redemptive history would unfold. But make no mistake, that was the Christ, revealed then as the promised seed. Remember? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That was the promise that our first parents had, Adam and Eve. That was the gospel. That is how Adam and Eve could be saved. And that same gospel that was proclaimed to Adam and Eve from the lips of our Savior himself was unfolded by farther steps, revealed in further steps as the Old Testament unfolded. And as that unfolding happened, that's when we were approached with the office of prophet, priest, and king. In a theocratic context in Israel, all those offices preceded the theocracy of Israel. Adam was a prophet, priest, and king. But in the theocracy of Israel, and as I trust you've seen in our Old Testament readings, we've seen 
this nation of Israel being born and ordered according to the principle of God. And that's where the concept of Messiah comes from, this anointed one. But he was called the seed, the promised seed from the very beginning. This was the Christ. This is the Christ. He would be promised by the prophets, pictured by the types and the shadows, and present in Theophanies and Christophanies, leading up to his birth in Bethlehem. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Remember, this was one of the this is one of the sharp rebukes that Jesus gave to the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees when he said, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me. Or, you say you're Abraham's child. If you were Abraham's seed, you would believe in me. Because Abraham believed in me. He rejoiced to see my day. He spoke, Moses spoke about me. John knows his audience. He knows there are those who have suffered for the name of Jesus. That they have suffered by calling him the Messiah. By saying, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, that's the one. That's the one Moses promised. That is the one prophesied to come. This is the hope of all the earth. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Messiah. John knows that there are Jews, even in his own congregation, who have suffered reproach for naming Christ as such. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 9. I want to share with you just one of the instances that were given. I believe that the book of Hebrews is an apologetic against confessing a Christ that is less than the biblical Christ. He's greater than the angels. But here in John 9, even before the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit from heaven, we already had rebukes and consequences for naming Jesus as the Messiah. Look at verse 13 of chapter 9. This is a story in the Gospels about a man who was healed from being blind. And it says this, They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind, who Jesus healed. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, and the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they, so they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Who is he? Since he opened your eyes, who is he? And he said, He's a prophet. Then the Jews, the Jews then did not believe it of him, 
that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, why did his parents say that? Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, for us today, do we confess Christ? It may be that we don't have much of a cost amongst our family members as it relates to the Judaism of our day. If you do have a Jewish background, you most likely know intimately well what it means to identify Yeshua or Jesus as the Christ. There is a virulent hatred for Jesus amongst Judaism. We know this. We've talked about this. But again, all of the Old Testament was about Jesus. It was about him as the Messiah, the Christ, the suffering servant. I'm reminded of a very touching story of, of a Jew who is a believer in Christ, who was sharing with his father in his living days that Jesus is the Messiah, and his father would have nothing of it. Do not name his name among me. And so it came to pass that this man's father was on his deathbed. And he told his son, son, read me the scriptures. I need some comfort. And his son, seeking to minister to his father on his dying bed, opened up Isaiah 53 to his dying father and read him that passage, which I know we are all familiar with as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he began to read. And his father looked at his son and said, stop reading me that insert expletive here, New Testament. And he looked at his father and said, Papa, this is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about Christ. It's about Jesus. And John says, anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Even still, Jesus the Messiah encourages us when he says, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. John 15, 18. Furthermore, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers, mother or children or farms for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. 
I don't know what trials are in store for you personally. I don't know what kind of trials are in store for our congregation. As we prayed for these congregations this morning, we're reminded of the scandal and the harm that can come from confessing the name of Christ. But what I do know is that Christ is worth anything that he calls us to. One person once said, I don't know who to cite here. I didn't come up with this. If he has brought you to it, he can bring you through it. John, remember, said in the third chapter, verse 23 of this epistle, and this is the commandment, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. And so this is where John turns now. After speaking of the promised one, he now speaks of the promised change. Look with me at verses 2 through 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John has coupled faith with love time and time again in this epistle. And here he does it again by speaking about love that fellow Christians have one for another and how that is rooted in their love of God. What a blessing it is for us to be able to gather together and to love one another. We noted before in our study that our love for each other flows from our love of God. And it is of no coincidence that John is speaking about love immediately, immediately after teaching on the doctrine of Christ. John Calvin noted, faith is the fountain of brotherly love. And so it is. We know from experience that if faith is not attended with love, what is it? Cold doctrine. Remember we talked in previous weeks about some who claim Calvinism is cold doctrine. And we showed how Calvin himself said that actually Christianity is warm, brotherly love. Calvinism is warm, brotherly love. Calvin said faith is the fountain of brotherly love. But if love is not attended by faith, likewise it's something not worthy of the virtues or the value of even being called love. Calvin goes on to speak of this verse when he says, It is indeed an argument drawn from the common course of nature, but what is seen among men is transferred to God. What is he, what is he getting at? Well, we know the idea of a stream. You know, what do we say? We say, the water comes from the mountain down to the springs. Or we could say something like, government is downstream from culture. And culture is downstream from education. And what Calvin is saying is, these expressions which ring true in nature are now transferred to God. That love flows from knowledge of him. 
This is why John has said, anyone who says that they love, anyone who says they love God and hates their brother is a liar. Why? Because brotherly love flows from our love of God and a confession of the true God. This is the promised change. Not only was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, but this promised change was promised through the love that God has for us as his children. Like the doctrine of the Messiah, we also have seen through the scriptures and heard of this change being spoken of as a circumcised heart. The prophet Ezekiel gives us a stunning picture when he calls what God taught him in the Valley of Dry Bones, which pictures, I don't believe, a future ethnic Israel being brought into a physical Palestine, prepared for some future mass conversion of Jews after the rapture. That's not what the Valley of Dry Bones is teaching, but rather regeneration and the new birth. I believe it was passages like the Valley of Dry Bones, by the way, which was referenced by our Lord and Savior when Nicodemus came to him at night. And Jesus taught him about the new birth, about being born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus answered, what? Am I to enter into the womb of my mother a second time? And what did Jesus say to Nicodemus when he, when he confessed that? He said, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things, Nicodemus? It was of the new birth, this promised change that Jesus was teaching Nicodemus of that night when he stowed, when Nicodemus had stowed away to Christ in the dark, in secret. And I believe that the prophet's Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones could have been one of the things in our Messiah's mind when he says, Nicodemus, are you a teacher? of Israel, and you don't know the prophecy of Ezekiel? The valley of dry bones? When I say you must be born again, these things aren't connecting, Nicodemus? But I believe that even before the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel, we're taught of these things. And again, I think Jesus was holding Nicodemus accountable to these truths. Turn with me, if you're able, to Ezekiel chapter 36. Pastor Perkins has unfolded for us the Valley of Dry Bones as we're going through Ephesians. I just want to unpack briefly the section that precedes the Valley of Dry Bones because it's teaching the same thing, regeneration, the new birth. When God is teaching about Israel in the latter days, when he's teaching about his nation at the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, he's teaching about us. He's teaching about his church, which includes Jews and Gentiles. And this is what he says in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24. For I will take you from the nations. This is the Great Commission. Go into all the world, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've command. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, go. Here in Ezekiel, it's a prophecy. For I will take you from the nations 
gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Brothers and sisters, God has done that for you, if you're in Christ. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. There it is. The new birth. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. This is what John has been saying. Brothers and sisters, you have an, an anointing from the Holy One. And cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. He's given you a new heart. You are a new creation in Christ. Verse 28, you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanliness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Spiritually, we have this. One day we'll have it physically as well. And that day is coming, brothers and sisters. Verse 31, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. In other words, the Holy Spirit will convict you of your sin. For all of us in Christ, that has been done. That is what drew us to Christ. Here, God promises to put his spirit within his people. And as an effect, they will walk and observe unto the Lord. They will be repentant. And again, John has linked this anointing, this anointing that we have all received, with the love for the brethren repeatedly. 1 John 4.21, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. It follows then that if this new birth causes us to walk in his statutes and makes us careful to observe his ordinances, then what John says is true as well. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. But now here's the application. We need to remember the doctrine of justification. We need to remember the doctrine of sanctification. We need to remember the doctrine of glorification. John is speaking in ideal terms. If we know God, we won't sin. If we know God, we won't hate our brothers and sisters. And we're apt to look at these verses and say one of two things. And it's been done by false teachers. Number one, I'm not a Christian. I don't measure up. This is a perfect standard and this is not reflective of me. One side of the ditch. Other side of the ditch, I can do this. I can live a perfect life. I can be so sanctified by the Holy Spirit before I die that I can actually live without sinning. That's the other side of the ditch. This is why we must remember not only what we've said thus far in 1 John, that John isn't teaching either sides of these ditches, but he's teaching... Number one, that Christ has done this for us. And that number two, that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in us 
bringing these things in further degrees to reality until one day, one day, that will be us without sin. This is why we must remember the doctrine of justification, that we're justified by Christ's works, not our own. The hope that we have of sanctification, that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in us. He is faithful to complete the work that he's begun in us. And then lastly, the doctrine of glorification, that one day these things will be true of us. That that one side of the ditch that we dare not fall into now, that we can live a perfect life, will actually one day be reflective of us. Not because of our works, but because of the work of glorification that God will do among us. And brothers and sisters, all of us in here who confess Christ are going to behold that day. We're going to behold that day and look at one another and say, can you believe it? But again, as we've said so many times before, we will have glorified minds. And so it's hard to imagine what we're going to think on that day because it's not going to be like we're thinking now. Marvel now! But that will not be the type of marvel we have then. That type of marvel will be greater. That is the promised change. And so lastly, the promised victory, as if a crescendo roll was bringing us to this point. The promised Messiah was to come, and we confess him. The promised change was to come, and we see it. And now the promised victory. Verse 4, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that we have, that has overcome the world, rather. Our faith. Again, as we recall the prayers that we cast this morning to our sovereign God of those congregations who are receiving persecution to a greater degree than we are, how can we say that we have victory and have overcome the world? We have to remember that these things are for us, first and foremost, spiritually in Christ. We have victory in Christ over the trials, and over the persecution that we have. But this is not some, some type of over-realized eschatology where we can have this victory now over the world. We're not called to usher in a glorious age of gospel prosperity where sin does not exist on this world. As Jesus taught in Luke, the sons of this age will always be wicked, but it is the age to come that promises these hopes. And as long as we're in this age, this will always be an evil age. One teacher so wisely put it this way, and it stuck with me. I pray it sticks with you. We don't base our eschatology on Revelation chapter 20. We base our eschatology on Luke chapter 20, which is Jesus teaching on the two-age system. This age and the age to come. This age will always be an evil age. Remember when Jesus was teaching the disciples, shall we tear up the wheat? Shall we tear up the weeds? No. Let them both grow together. The weeds grow and the wheat grow together. When? Until the return of the king. And what does he do with the wheat? He gathers it and brings it to his barn and he burns the weeds. When does that happen? Now? No. 
at his coming. At his coming. And yet John can say, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And then he qualifies it. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Here it is. Your faith. It's your faith. Well, no, no, I, I want the governments of this world to overcome the world. I, I, want, I want America to overcome the world. I want there to be a, a city on a hill in Washington, D.C. that gets the right man in power, that slowly regenerates the world into a perfect condition, and then Christ will come and sit on his glorious throne. No. That is not the hope that we have. That is not what has overcome the world. It's our faith. Our faith has overcome the world. And it's because our faith is in Christ. And he has already overcome the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's not to say we're to sit idly by and let the weeds grow. No, we're called to be salt. We're called to be light. We're planting churches. How my heart rejoices of that one congregation, which was a church plant in Chilliwack, British Columbia, is involved in, what was it, three or four church plants? Had, a, had another family in Honduras? Why do that if we're just to sit back and watch it burn? No, we're not called to sit back and watch it burn. Because Christ is building his kingdom through us. But this is our victory, our faith. In conclusion, I was reminded last week of a hymn that we sang, which is very apropos to this section of 1 John chapter 5. With all of the false doctrines swirling around us, with all of the per trials and persecution that is coming upon those who name the name of Christ, Remember the words to the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Still schisms, tribulation, and hatred fuel our war. We wait the consummation of peace forevermore. The saints, their watch are keeping, their cries go up. How long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morning of song. Yet we on earth have union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O oh, happy and holy ones, God give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, may live eternally. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this word. We thank you for First John. We thank you that the apostle still speaks, although he is happy and holy in his rest with you in heaven. The apostolic doctrine goes forth. Those whom you commissioned in the first century still speak in the pages of your holy writ. And indeed, we confess that it is the Holy Spirit who speaks through them. May we not depart to the right or to the left from that which they taught, that which you commissioned them to taught. We pray for the many pastors and pulpits and teachers around the world who will be held accountable for what they teach out of your word. May it correspond to that which you have revealed for your glory and our good.
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.